Mother Earth is psychedelic. Her body is covered with psychoactive, sacred medicine. Can psychedelics help us become more conscious and loving parents, partners, lovers, and leaders? Welcome to the Psychedelic Mom Podcast. I'm your host, Michaela Carlin, the Psychedelic Mom, a mother and entrepreneur partnering with Mother Earth's sacred plant medicines to heal, awaken, and learn to live in alignment to my truth. Psychedelic literally means soul revealing. What reveals the soul to oneself is psychedelic. I invite you to join me in deep conversations with leaders, healers, seekers, and other parents. I will share my journey, the wisdom, practices, medicines, and mistakes that have changed my life, and personal stories of others on this wild path. We are the medicine needed to birth the more beautiful world we know is possible. Welcome to this episode of the Psychedelic Mom Podcast. I'm your host, Michaela Carlin, and I'm here today with the legendary Joe Moore. How are you doing today? Legendary is awesome. I'm doing great. (laughs) Well, you have one of the oldest psychedelic podcasts running. Is this true? Since like 2015? I think one of the longest continually running ones. Yeah, they're I think actually one of the very first podcasts ever to exist was a psychedelic podcast called Psychedelic Salon. And it's still operating. They weren't doing kind of like what we do. They had access to tons of archives. So they're able to air archives all the time, which is amazing. So that was one of my big inspirations. That's pretty interesting to even think that like it was in the psychedelic realm to be so edgy, to be podcasts were so new at one point. Psychedelics were at the forefront of cyber culture and counterculture. If it wasn't for psychedelics, I don't think the Palo Alto, San Francisco scene would have played out the way it did, right? And not even just Steve Jobs, it was everybody. Yeah, the whole Silicon Valley, as we know now, was inspired by psychedelic use and microdosing of all sorts of things. So I invited you here today because I know that you have been an avid researcher of psychedelics and um, have really had conversations with some of the leading speakers and leaders and visionaries in the field. And you have your own expertise in transpersonal breathwork and are a much sought out international speaker on the intersectionality of psychedelics, medicine, healing, drug policy. So you're really covering all the interesting topics of today. And you have your own kind of personal history and story and journey with psychedelics. So welcome here today. It's good to see you. Yeah, likewise. Glad to be here. And thanks for having me. I know you're just back from Burning Man and have a tiny little injury. Um, We heard on our end that it was a natural disaster. Were you feeling that while you were there? Not really. No, like some people were a little panicky. There's some analogy to this psychedelic world here. Like you feel a little bit of discomfort and how quickly do you run? especially when you feel really vulnerable. Well, I'm thinking with a little injury, did you run or did you go in? Because <laughs> you don't look wounded to me. <laughs> yeah, right. I'll just show everybody on camera. Yeah, a little blood blister. And that was from uh, using my Leatherman to like help break down my camp. We stayed a bunch of extra days. We, we left um, when it felt like nobody was there anymore. So, you know, we took our time. We had so much extra water, so much extra food and gasoline. Like we were in really good shape. And we couldn't give away the water. We were trying really hard. So 
like meaning that it seemed like there was a pretty good resilience set up there. Like the whole idea is you bring extra and share it like crazy. And then nobody really knows dives <laughs> as hard because, you know, everybody's there to catch each other. Like on the way out, there was a uh, free showers and free steak, like in one spot. I'm like, that's crazy on the last day. Amazing that there's that much abundance left over. So when's the first time you went to Burning Man? Last year. Last year was my first, and it was the hottest, dustiest, uh, worst roads. I was cool with it. I live in a ski town, right? Like, I, I pay a premium to be in really horrible conditions by most standards, right? <laughs> so I was kind of okay with it. This year is a little more challenging because you're like, oh, you actually can't move. So we just had to, like, hang out with our friends and twist my arm to hang out with my friends for a few extra days in closer quarters, you know? It's really hard. It <laughs> <laughs> sounds terrible with free steak and plenty of water. And we had a big dance party. Like one of our friends had a big sound system. So we just had people from our neighborhood came over and we had an awesome party, like 12 hours. It was great. What brought you into the psychedelic space to be one of the first people to want to have conversations about these medicines, drugs, whatever you like to call them? I like to call them drugs. <laughs> take things down a notch like if things get a little too lofty i don't really love it <laughs> i got into this i think my parents were children in the 60s i recall listening to the grateful dead a lot and like having grateful dead album art all over and i think there was something about the x-files there was definitely psychedelic episodes and a holotropic breathwork episode there was you know this sense of mystery and wonder but also like i was kind of like a little scientist growing up you know I wanted to know everything I could. And then there was limits to knowledge, right? There was all these UFO stories and, and mystical, magical stories, but like, where were they? And that wasn't showing up in school for me. So when I went to my undergrad, I um, took my 101 from a big time transcendental meditation guy, uh, Dr. David Haight, H-A-I-G-H-T, like Haight-Ashbury, which is fun. And um, he assigned a book called Holographic Universe by Michael Talbot. And it shared kind of like cases from different fields of science and medicine where things were very well documented, but were really like fringe cases that showed, hey, maybe the rules we thought we were playing by in this universe weren't really the ones that are actually <laughs> the case, right? Like things like magic and ESP and et cetera were showing up. And there was one case study of um, a woman receiving LSD psychotherapy in a um, psychiatric hospital in Prague while it was occupied by the Soviets. And this is Dr. Stanislav Grof, the co-founder of Holtzberg Breathwork, and he was doing this work and treated this lady with aggressive trauma and addiction history. And the presentation looked like something out of The Exorcist and Poltergeist. And I'm like, uh, what? Yeah, with, with great results at the end. After it was over, she was like in really great shape and was able to go back to her life my world revolves around Soviet Prague and LSD psychotherapy. So I want to like be really explicit around this. And this is like during very cold war times. So I come from a different place from a lot of people. And then I luckily kind of called bullshit in my head and then said, let me go read some of this guy's books to see if he's full of baloney or if there's some real value there. And my small state school in New Hampshire, Plymouth State had a bunch of books by Stan Groff and I was able to start digging in I think I was 19 years old, to hardcore um, psychiatric literature on psychedelics. And it was hard. I worked on these books for for years <laughs> to get through them all, but I got through them all. Yeah, it's not light reading. No, and I 
I have a little bit of dyslexia, ADD like crazy. Reading paper often just puts me to sleep, especially when I was 19. Yeah, so it was like a lot of challenges, but I was a creature of the internet. So I found some email lists and found my teachers in Vermont through some email lists that were running and um, fell into a great holotropic breathwork community. Notably, I didn't really get into psychedelics till years, or actively ingesting, till years of holotropic breathwork was under my belt. Not by choice. So what was? Was it the illegality? Uh, lack of access, yeah. Dark web wasn't a thing. Silk Road hadn't happened yet. Like Bitcoin wasn't even a dream yet. So like all these things, I think Leonard Picard was just arrested in 1999 and this is 2001 for me. So a lot of the LSD supply kind of um, dried up, I believe. MDMA was happening. I just wasn't around it for whatever reason. Did you ever meet Stan Graf? Yeah, I got to meet Stan a few times. A really kind, amazing guy. So it's fascinating how you were like pulled to this subject, like literally pulled, because I find myself similarly, like when I'm interested in a topic, I will read the depths into it and let everything else kind of like, I don't want to read that. So somehow you were pulled to this. And what was now that you have the context of holotropic breathwork and psychedelics, how would you compare those two modalities Radically different and radically similar. So the amount of work required to put LSD on your tongue is really low, really low. So it's a straight up, you buy the ticket, take the ride kind of thing. There's there's ways out. They're not advisable. Holotropic breath work, transpersonal breath work. You have to put in a lot of work. And what happens is you actually gain agency. There's a really interesting and important thing um, that comes up in breath work, say, where it's like, this is actually coming from you. The magic is in you. The substances unlock the magic in you in interesting and novel ways, but you also have techniques where you can do this with yourself and you don't need an external source to do that. So my most powerful experience was five hours of breath work, just in the experience, not like I was doing it consciously the whole time, but deep in this like harrowing experience. And that was as powerful as my very large ayahuasca experience and and this um, kind of accidental 10 to 20 hit LSD experience, like the breathwork experience was still more powerful. What would you say was the most powerful psychedelic experience for you? And where did that then take your life and what wisdom kind of came out of that? Let's call it the most helpful. It was probably my first and only encounter with ayahuasca. Well, there's going to be two actually. So yeah, let's start with ayahuasca. Ayahuasca pulled me out of like a pretty weird depression that I was in and set me on the path to to do what I do today, honestly. And also radically reduced depression. I felt like I was walking on sunshine for nine months. I started journaling, qigong every day, yoga very regularly, working out all the time. You know, I was so happy <laughs> for that period of time after. It was amazing. And not like you can really repeat that for folks, but, you know, I was young enough. I, I did all the dieta. I was, you know, trying to be as healthy as I could, you know, working in software. So it was like low strain in my body and I had resources to buy food. Is that right? <laughs> no, I stretched myself to do healthy food. <laughs> what did it show you? Um, I was able to speak to dead relatives and have them tell me they loved me. Theoretically, I saw some past life stuff. I don't like to put it in like black or white terms. Was it my past life or not that's for somebody else with uh you know a little more (laughs) science to figure out for me and then 
you know, what else? There was like sheer maximal terror of like losing my soul at the beginning, you know, as it's coming on. It's like a magnificently powerful insectoid thing, kind of like a reptilian thing scanning me. It's all my, you know, conspiracy brains going off. Oh, the reptiles, this is what they were talking about. Oh no. But then like at a certain point I started purging and then it was like, oh, this is, this is brilliant. The purging was fine and actually kind of exquisite. <laughs> and, um, yeah, then I had some, became all sorts of different animals. I had, the shaman did not like that I had um, both of my hands all the way in my mouth, like bolt, like this. Like He wasn't into that, but I was having a really interesting octopus experience at the time. So he blew some rose water on me and um, it just kind of dissolved. If that was happening to somebody in a breathwork workshop, I would have let him do it for two hours, you know, assuming they looked safe. So it's interesting, the framework difference too. The frameworks are different in a ceremony and the breath work. At the end of this ayahuasca ceremony, there was no integration. People drove home to Manhattan after from upstate. I'm like, what? what? Um, okay, <laughs> freaking lunatics. <laughs> I just talked to dead relatives. There's no integration for this. Yeah, and I'm coming from breath work where we have a frame for sharing and, and concluding a ceremony and all this stuff. You know, they concluded the ceremony their way, which is kind of Shipibo-ish which is legit too. It's just with the advent of modern psychology, we mean transpersonal psychology and psychedelic literature, we should probably be informing our practices a little bit more. But some people just want the traditional route, which is okay too, as long as it's advertised that way. You then went on to explore a bunch of different conversations with so many people about psychedelics. And I'm curious what that path was like. Like what were the most interesting conversations that you've had? I did a podcast on like esoteric occult, like obscure religions called Occult Sentinel before, then a permaculture podcast talking about sustainability and environment. And that very briefly, a um, kind of sports of flow states one. But then this one just had traction. And so I was really excited about it. So that's kind of where I got a lot of experience for this. And then my most interesting conversations, this one woman um, that goes by the name The Tea Fairy, is one of the more interesting podcasts I've done, I believe. Really fascinating character, a staple in the Burning Man psychedelic scene. Very fascinating individual. Just talking very matter-of-factly about different levels of how we have to operate in the psychedelic space. There's the drug dealer thing. There's the doing amazing things with your friends. There's spirit contacts. There's backup plans and emergencies. And you know, it, there was just so many layers to our conversation. It was years ago, so I can't remember too well for what it's worth. We're well over 500 episodes in. So like, wow, uh, I don't want to pick too many favorites, <laughs> but who else is amazing? Oh, there's just so many good ones. I really like the esoteric religion one still. I can't think of who this might have been, but East, like um, Eastern European witchcraft and like the the survival of different plant and psychedelic traditions which is largely Amanita, Henbane, things like that. But there's a good chance there were psilocybin-containing mushrooms out there too. Right now, at this time, so much has changed since you first started. Dramatic changes, probably even since I met you. Things are changing so quickly in this space. I mean, honestly. What are you seeing right now as some of the leading topics in psychedelics that we really need to dive into more deeply, thoughtfully, um, and be more curious about at this time in history? 
Yeah, you're going to tickle my drug anarchism. That's good. <laughs> That's right. I think I asked you that the last time. Are you a, are you a psychedelic anarchist? So let's just get that out there. Are you? <laughs> Probably. Yeah. In a, in a sensible way, not totally. But let's, um, let's get to that in a second. So like the dialogue right now in psychedelics is dominated heavily by university researchers working to exclusively medicalize these things. There's no holistic frame here around, you know, where do we need to go? So this is why I'm hopeful with moms groups like yours and others and the veterans groups and different advocacy groups, because, you know, cluster busters, you're familiar with them a little bit. They're the, um, like second longest running kind of psychedelic nonprofit, I think after maps, and they've been working to teach people how to grow mushrooms, use LSD to treat their cluster headaches, which is an orphan condition. They've been at this for at least 15 years, if not almost 20 now. They just had a conference um, last week in Tampa. And like, nobody cares. Nobody seems to say, hey, look at that population that doesn't need a therapist to treat themselves. So we're getting locked into this kind of due to perhaps political realities, we're getting locked into this therapy frame that isn't necessary for all conditions. And that's troubling. I'm a founding member of the Psychedelics and Pain Association, uh, which is a really fun nonprofit in partnership with uh, Remap Therapeutics and Cluster Busters and a few other groups to develop the science of pain management, chronic pain treatment with psychedelic compounds. And um, there's some really promising data in the scientific literature already. And we need money for clinical trials, which is why I'm kind of in bed with, uh, as a board member at the Psychedelic Medicine Coalition, a lobby where we're really trying to loosen federal science funding for psychedelic research. Because right now, a lot of this stuff is philanthropy-based and business-based funding, which is fine. But I think given how popular microdosing is, and this is a little overstating it, but there's a little bit of truth here too. Like it's a it's a public health emergency that we need to actually fund the science so we can understand this stuff. And like, I think microdosing is super safe. And I, I think if people want to be using psychedelics, great, get educated first, but great. And it behooves the establishment to spend on this. And another way I think about this that we don't really get into in the psychedelic movement is like, how are we as kind of people trying to reform psychedelic law? How do we relate to drug policy more generally? And the racist origins of the United States uh, war on drugs, you know, Nixon was very explicit that it was to keep certain populations down. Everybody should listen to the Nixon tapes where he talks about this or read the excerpts. It's ugly. And the way drugs have used historically to really affect certain populations in general is it still big question, right? Explicit racism. It still is today. Even in some ways, tying that to what's going on right now in this time in history, money is flowing from our government basically kind of in one direction, as you were talking about in some ways when it comes to research. It's this therapeutic model and it's, you know, certain medicines only that will like take maps, for example, to a large degree, maps will have a a monopoly really on MDMA and who can serve it and who's legally able to take it. So it's like, is it really legalization? In one sense, yes. In one sense, no, right? It's um, it's tricky. So yeah, like the drug war was a, a jobs program. Prohibition of alcohol got shut down. Harry Anslinger needed a job. He was dating somebody very senior in the executive branch or married to and thus the narcotics war <laughs> continued. Nixon really amplified it. And, you know, the current president did a lot to support the drug war, though he's 
quietly trying to make amends, I think a little bit, a little bit. And I hold a grudge, <laughs> but I'm like a drug war extremist, right? Like I, I want the drug war over because in my mind, the US government is killing our people. They're killing our friends and family. Like how many kids in, for example, a beautiful Rhode Island town have died from fentanyl. It's crazy. Or committed suicide from depression, anxiety, from the results of the mental health crisis with no options, really. It's Yeah. And that's an extrapolation from the drug war, right? Like because they eliminated this science, eliminated the funding, people are dying. All the people that died from cancer, imagine the amount of relief and, and good days they could have had if this treatment was available for them decades ago. This stuff was part of the medicine cabinet. This was prescribed. This was being used in hospitals and all other places. Well, it's interesting. I heard someone say the other day that drug comes from the, basically the etymology of drug is dried plant. You know, and you're right. These were part of people's lives for hundreds and thousands of years. We couldn't even probably know when some of these, in particular, earth medicines were used. Uh, if it wasn't part of the canon of the medicine, it was witchcraft, right? It's um and and demonized rapidly. It's like, oh, great. And they were burning us. So let's go quickly to this psychedelic anarchist idea. It's tricky for me. I definitely believe that it should be decriminalized. But your feeling is you should be able to get LSD at Walmart. Tell me why why you like decriminalization. I guess I like decriminalization because I feel like the legalization model that is in place really supports certain corporations. And like we just talked about with MAPS, like, is it really legal to use MDMA? Well, no. If you go to a MAPS therapist, yes. If you are trained through these particular programs, yes. Um, it's not legal for me if I'm suddenly feeling like I'm having PTSD and I feel really like I could do this on my own, or I have somebody who has trained that I could do this. So that's not legalization to me. So decriminalization to me says it takes it down from this hierarchical system. So that's my point of view, whether it's you know correct or well-informed. Do you see them as mutually exclusive? No. But legalization has to be changed. The way we're doing legalization has to be changed. I'm like a pedal to the metal person because as I see it, U.S. tax dollars are being used to kill my friends and family through the drug war and through prohibition and through a lack of safe supply. So decriminalization is a perfect first step. Decriminalization does not go far enough in that it doesn't provide us the infrastructure to hold people accountable for fraud, for instance. Like there's all these expensive mushroom chocolate bars going around. Not all of them are mushroom. A lot of them contain a synthetic compound called 4-ACO-DMT. And if you're being sold something that wasn't as advertised, there's an element of fraud there and that excludes you from playing part of the legal system to hold those folks accountable. And the further we legalize, the further we say the state has no fucking business telling us what we can and cannot do, especially with their own bodies and their own minds, then a legal framework's legit. And see, I believe that. Like, I believe in full sovereignty. I guess there's this part of me, and I don't know if it's because I am a mom, and I'm like, whoa, okay, let's say it's legal. What is that? You know, this is like faulty thinking as I'm even saying it's faulty thinking. Like, maybe. <laughs> right. 
Like, I don't want to buy my melatonin from a drug dealer, right? Like, I want to know it's lab verified that it's two milligrams, right? And same thing with cannabis. Like, I want to know it's 50 milligrams or 10 or five or whatever. And I think cannabis regulation went way too far. That's why there's still a robust black market and like product is so expensive, especially in new states as they come online. We need to radically relax those laws eventually to the point where we're buying bulk cannabis in the spice racks, you know, (laughs) so we don't need four pounds of plastic to buy like a little bit of cannabis, right? And told how many plants we can grow. Right. Which is to your point, that's not legalization. That's a highly regulated situation. That's not shouldn't be misconstrued with legalization. So I push it to the extreme in my argument where I'm saying like, I want to buy LSD at Walmart or a lot of people tell me Whole Foods is cooler because it's Jeff Bezos, not the Waltons. And I'm like, cool, cool, whatever guys. And then at that scale, like LSD comes down to like, what is market price somewhere between three to $20 a hit now is what people are paying on the market. And then It'll probably bring it down at scale to like 25 cents, 10 cents a hit, which is insane. The dollar per hour experience is outrageous in that kind of ratio. <laughs> okay, let me ask you a question. So in kind of ancient traditions, and even probably the at the Eleusian Mysteries, you know, these people did medicine once a year, or the shaman did the medicine, or the wise women known as witches might have done the medicine or given the medicine as a form of initiation to those who were ready. And I don't mean that in a hierarchical way. And maybe there was that, I don't know. Certainly religions then went on to create these hierarchical guru types of churches. What do you think of, again, risk factor to society with these drugs, medicines, just freely available. Like there's this like balance for me because I do believe in like full sovereignty. Like you can't tell me (laughs) what I can do and not do. I mean, no. Are you familiar with the David Nutt harm scale that was published in The Lancet? And I think it was around 2009. I am actually where alcohol was at the top and- It's what he got fired for. Psilocybin mushrooms were at the bottom. Yeah. It's pretty profound. So the UK government promptly fired him for publishing that. And he was like the drug czar for UK. He's like, hey, guys, I'm going to do a project and we'll have a science-based drug policy. And they're like, cool, here's some cash. And then promptly can't because alcohol is really big in the UK. Tobacco is really big in the UK. These are the sanctioned drugs. How do you want to compare like alcohol and tobacco use? I've seen some really ugly alcohol and tobacco use. Like alcohols hurt my family almost as much as the Catholic Church has. And how do we compare those two things with like, LSD, mushrooms, etc. Like MDMA is safer than horseback riding by the numbers. How do we balance this? Have you have you read uh, Dr. Carl Hart's Drug Use for Grownups? He's the uh, Columbia head of psychology or former. I think that book lays out the case relatively well. Yeah, it really does. Because we had total access to clean drugs before the drug war started. Like people could buy cocaine in the store. People could buy laudanum, opium, and inject heroin right from the store. And doctors could treat the addiction as opposed to like, oh, let me do a tap dance to like maybe get you into a program and maybe help you. Current addiction paradigm is not great and it's very fraudulent. I guess in a dream world that there is full sovereignty and choice that of what we can and cannot put in our bodies. And the Western model 
that is kind of an industrial, pharmaceutical, military model, in some way gets peeled back some, I'm going to call it feminine, maybe feminine wisdom to it. And that's not even the right word, but kind of a context around these medicines and drugs and earth wisdoms that is a little less of the Western psychological model. I heard somebody talking recently about like the mind states instantiated by different, even just caffeinated beverages and like how how coffee kind of just made the world really like flat and non-mystical, but like with black and green tea still kind of had a little bit of that. But um, backing up just briefly to your point and to like counter me briefly, there's a model that Timothy Leary really made famous. They call it like the pilot's license model. Rick Doblin's been doing a lot of work to like raise this idea because he's seeing the limitations of his work too, right? Yeah, great. Like medicine, cool. But like, that's not really what I wanted. And he's pushing this pilot's license model where you would take some training and then you would be allowed access to buy. And when I was chatting with him in, in DC, when we were lobbying in the spring, I think it was, I asked him a little bit about it. On one hand, I like it. On the other hand, it feels super restrictive and I don't like it. And his his operating premise is at a certain point of time, we'll have enough cultural knowledge around these things to be able to handle it without the training and without licensure. So that said, do institutions want to give up that, <laughs> you know, ability to license? Probably not, but... And maybe if there was legalization, what we would see is communities around this that then would create what feels right for them, what ceremonial aspects feel right for them. And I guess that's really what we need more of. Not me saying, oh, more feminine model, more this model. People having access to say, this is what works for us. This is our community. Yeah. And being able to be open. Like one of the biggest harms in psychedelics right now is secrecy. And you have to be secret if you're going to a ceremony. And like, say you saw some abuse there or some misbehavior or just poor performance, you can't come out about it too readily. And if you did to the police, you're like, yeah, I was doing drugs with this guy. And they're like, okay, see you later. Don't care because you were on drugs. And the fact that it's illegal makes it so that the police don't have the ability to intervene on really violent, bad behavior. And I've, I used to be the psychedelic police. Everybody was coming to me with issues. And I'm like, Ugh. at a certain point, I was ready to quit PT because I'm like, I can't handle being the police with no resources. I tried to intervene in two really horrible cases that were somewhat close to home for me geographically. And I had some senior people shut me down in really horrible ways. And I'm like, okay, like I don't trust you people anymore. <laughs> Great. That's a way, way to go. Really good point, though, because the secrecy, and obviously this is why you do what you do, and I'm doing what I'm doing, is trying to amplify the voices of those in the space that are trying to make change in a positive way, giving voice to both Indigenous as well as the leaders in places like MAPS, and so that we can kind of take these medicines and look at what you mentioned earlier, the mom space. Why do you think it's important that mothers are involved in the psychedelic space? I think culturally in America, in the West, maybe generally, maybe I can only speak to Canada and United States, honestly, but there's so much respect towards mothers. There's so much value given to family and mothers being such a critical part, generally speaking, of family. And that paired with the distrust, like generalized distrust of big, big biotech 
and pharma has has made like a perfect pairing for mothers to be an excellent voice for mushrooms. You get the wine moms chugging two bottles a night of wine. Great, like cool. They don't get too shamed. They get a little shamed, but not a lot. And then, you know, the cannabis moms, like that's, you know, that's scary because your kids can get taken away. And then the mushroom moms go even on a further out on a limb, which is amazing to defend how mushrooms could make their families happier and healthier. It's a harder argument for cannabis, just given the cultural eye on it. But I think folks have done a really good job rehabilitating the view of mushrooms on moms and and just generally, you know, moms trying to get well in the best way they can. You know, the line moms know best, things like that. There's so many good cultural ties here, cultural anchors with mothers. Yeah, again, if we're going to change society, in some ways it starts with changing kids, families, and um, the narratives that we grew up with. As you know, like psychedelics, one of the best things that they are good for is peeling back all your conditioning and kind of presenting you with the raw you that was underneath all of your particular familial, cultural, social conditioning to basically be like, hmm, now who do you want to be? What do you want to bring into the world? What society do you want to build? And that's, to me, again, not only why it's important for moms, I'm always, I'm always advocating for um, younger adults to go where psychedelics are legal, to have an experience so that they're not doing this work even later on in life, that they raise their consciousness before they even have children so that they can be more engaged and conscious about how to even go, go about that. It's important healing yourself before you're able to pass down your intergenerational trauma. It's a big deal. And not like healing's ever finished, but at least you can start mopping the floors a little bit, right? And like get a little into it. Mm-hmm. And for dads too. Totally. Clean up your act. <sighs> at least get in therapy, <laughs> at least. But, you know, there's, there's ways to make that stuff better, work better. Is this a mission of yours? Mitigating intergenerational trauma, yeah. A little bit, a little bit. Like it's it's part of the package, right? It's not It's unavoidable. It's not like one of my core pillars, but it's like deep in the subtext everywhere, right? It's like how do we clean up our acts and just not be be the parents we want to be. Yeah. Like one of my friends was telling me about this story the other day. He had um he had a small kind of mushroom experience and he's hanging out, leaning his five year old and like just kind of cuddling or whatever and just the the level of connection from a father to son that i was hearing was like there was so much awe in me just of hearing the story about the level of connection the wisdom from a five-year-old the level of beauty of their language like that you know just being and being quiet even like well in the depths of an experience like magical that's available to people you know you have to break the law in a lot of cases to get that life-altering yeah, and life's hard. Like people lose connection with their partners, people lose connection with their kids. These are ways to help maintain that. Have you felt any way that uh, psychedelics have been a relational healer in any of your relationships? Totally. Yeah, I've been saying this recently. I'm in a 10-year relationship now and I I think we would have made it at least 4 years without psychedelics and MDMA, but like because of psychedelics and MDMA were at 10 years. It's the longest, best relationship I've ever been in. And um, yeah, just regular dancing and having fun and things like that. 
I know plenty of couples that only drink and smoke cigarettes and they don't dance and have fun. Their fun is like taking snipes and jabs at each other is what I see. I don't see a lot of kindness usually in those relationships. And what I want to see is far more kindness and humanity. And yeah, psychedelics, including MDMA, in addition to those, like it's, it's really powerful for that. What do your parents think about what you're doing? Uh, my mother was a nurse. She retired as a nurse. Um, both my folks, I think, were children in the 60s. And my mother's really happy with it now. You know, I think she was really dubious. My dad was really dubious for a while, you know, but what happened? They started seeing stories on TV. They started getting messages like, hey, UPenn's doing a, um, a psychedelic nursing program. I'm like, oh, cool. Or like a conference. I'm like, great, great. That's amazing. And then they went and like dedicated to it. I'm like, oh, that's cool. Like there's some actual traction I'm seeing now. And, you know, I think they're really proud of it and really happy with it. And at first they're like, what are you doing? Your reputation's going to be ruined. Like you can't ever get back into software after this. I'm like, maybe, but that's probably pretty cool if I can't go back to software because I didn't really love it all that much. And um, yeah, I think they're into it. I think everybody's pretty happy with it at this point, my brother and sister. What do you love doing the most? Is it the interviews? Is it this new vital psychedelic program that you have? Is it connecting with other people and building community? Like what really kind of excites you about this space and where it's headed and your role in it? So let's start with Vital. Like uh, Vital came from our first program that we were running, a nine-week thing called Navigating Psychedelics, which we're still running. We're doing our first Australia cohort soon, which is awesome. And and Israel. So we're doing a Jewish Perspectives, Navigating Psychedelics, which is cool. I loved teaching that. That was like amazing to take people from like barely able to have a conversation to like, you know, now they're actually relatively fluent in psychedelics generally. And Wow. How long is that program? It's nine weeks. Uh, if you do the live one, it's 47 hours over nine weeks. More if you want. <laughs> so we started that to like serve college kids. We're like, okay, what would we have wanted in college to help make our journeys a little easier? All of a sudden, doctors and therapists were showing up and we're like we don't feel great about you all being here. Um, so we're going to build something better for you. So we did like navigating psychedelics for clinicians and therapists. That was dope too. And we welcomed people of all stripes to that as well. So we're, we try to be not exclusive. We try to allow non-clinicians to take up space in a, in a training designed for clinicians. It's so important. So I think there's some magic there. And I just love that kind of level of connection, watching people grow over nine weeks. It's so awesome. And then... Eventually, we started adding all sorts of other classes, and we're seeing that MDMA is coming, psilocybin's coming. So we're like, what can we do? As much as we admire CIS and MAPS for their programs, we said, let's try to do something that we believe is truly better than what's on offer. And we spent a lot of time developing the Vital program. We launched, uh, we're halfway through our second year right now with our students. I think we graduated 130 students last year. And it was amazing. Did you also look at other programs like synthesis and things like that and kind of get like where they were working, where maybe they needed better? Yeah. And we have a very specific philosophical orientation, like um, Stan Groff's work, transpersonal psychology are huge for us. Kyle also went to school for um, clinical mental health and somatic psychology. So he has a master's in body psychology effectively, which is now in vogue quite substantially in psychedelics, usually with a certain trademark or something. But 
the fact that he has that, plus we have the transpersonal stuff. He has his own shamanic work. I have my own kind of like personal spiritual practices too. And like, how do we bring ourselves fully into that and bring the people we like the most in the space fully into that and um, that are willing to work with us? And it's been extraordinary because we've been able to do retreats with people, you know, breath work, cannabis, psilocybin. You get to pick the locations. Right. <laughs> At first, Kyle and I were both going to the retreats, and we're like, I don't know that the business is going to function if we're both on these retreats, man. Like, uh, So I was like, Kyle, you enjoy them. I wish I could go to all of them, but I can't. But they're so amazing. It's so amazing to watch people kind of like grow with the experience and support each other. And then after a full year of training, these people are family almost to each other. I was hearing about them organizing their own kind of retreats recently with each other, which is like, what a great result. Everybody does their own little psychedelic vacations. Like, what's a better result than that? People are getting into grad school because of even our earlier programs and getting jobs because of those. And now people are definitely going to get jobs after Vital. And it's really cool to watch. So big passion there, obviously. And when you are doing this, are you... Uh, facilitating mushroom ceremonies or using different psychedelics? or We lean on partners to to handle those. So we'll do stuff in the Netherlands and Jamaica with partner orgs or the legal stuff here is insane. <laughs> Can I even call them partners? I don't think so. They're, they're just offering stuff for our students and our students go. You know, yeah, so we'll do psilocybin, cannabis and breath work. Right now we're exploring ketamine for next year and... Yeah, like the cannabis stuff and the breathwork stuff to paired together, I thought was a really good combo. People really doubt the power of breathwork until they're in the room and watch it and uh, experience it. But it's really damn powerful. And it's it's funny in this scene to just have so much doubt. You know, it's interesting. I just came back a couple of weeks ago from a silent meditation retreat. And I had an experience last night that equals any psychedelic experience I had, which was really surprising. And also the level of um, deep kind of shadow work of really contacting primal, visceral emotions that somehow were still suppressed. <laughs> meditation is amazing. I did it with one like nine day breath work and Vipassana meditation retreat. Exquisite. Again, walking on sunshine for a while after that. And when we think there's risk in psychedelics, we, we don't necessarily do a fair comparison, right? So do people get hospitalized after meditation retreats or in, in the middle of meditation retreats? And the answer is 100% yes. We have a number of cases that we've heard of. So like even things that don't involve drugs have risk, have a risk profile. So that's another step in my argument. It's interesting. There was a kind of teacher that was there is a very non-guru teacher. And yet, of course, at the end, I was like, you know, come on, just give me some Shakti. Just wake me up like right this instant. Give me, give me the full self-realization. Bring it on. And he said, it is interesting because there is the ability to transfer kind of that kind of energy. But when he did it when he was younger and didn't realize it, actually a couple people ended up very destabilized. And actually, he said, like hospitalized. If you're not ready to go into the deeps in some way and don't have kind of the container to be held, if you're going into deep shadow work, it can be destabilizing, no matter if it's earth medicine, psychedelics, meditation, breath work, like it's delicate work that needs 
deep holding around. Like if you're kind of doing that and no one's there and you have no idea what even shadow work is, and you're now in the primal emotions of like the collective, <laughs> how do you handle that and go back to work on Tuesday and go back to be a you know, computer designer? <laughs> There's a classic book author is Gopi Krishna, G-O-P-I, called Kundalini. And it, he was just a normal, normal guy living in India, doing his thing and doing some yoga. And all of a sudden he had like a full on Kundalini awakening in his body. His body was on fire for years years and he wasn't really trying all that hard <laughs> and shit can just happen and this is again drug free so the point is our body is a really complex delicate thing also quite resilient <laughs> but we have to be careful with these really powerful things and how do we what would be lovely Kayla is if we had like oh what are the what are the attainments you need to receive that Shakti pot like what do you need to accomplish in terms of feats of asana, meditation. The slow peeling away, right. Right. Or like, what is it? How do you get your energetic system ready? And that's that's really what the asana practice is, is getting the body ready for bigger containment. In a lot of ways. In a lot of ways. I don't, it's not all it is. So what kind of excites you the most right now in where we're headed and for your life I'm, I'm working really closely with uh, I'm part of the team at Remap Therapeutics, and we're one of the first chronic pain treatment companies in the psychedelic space. And one of our early like ballpark estimates was that we can reduce chronic opioid prescriptions by at least 80% worldwide using our methods. And that is amazing. And then we had an Ivy League medical person tell us that seems really conservative, our 80% figure was conservative to this Ivy League doctor, given all the work we've done. Now, is this in using like Ibogaine or is this something completely different for... So it's kind of like physical therapy meets psychedelics in a really specific way. A um, lot of prep, a lot of post-care, a lot of you know lifestyle change, but we're nine weeks after our first kind of test and 100% remission versus 15 years of zero relief at maximal pain. Like, let's drop the mic right there. <laughs> Is there more to say? Yeah. So like, that's what I'm really excited about. So I think there's applications, like we're at 50,000 limb loss survivors from the Ukraine struggle right now in Ukraine, which is horrifying in terms of phantom limb pain. And then, you know, those people need help immediately. And um, just imagine if we had people back, like, okay, you don't have to take crazy amounts of opioids every day just to like barely hold on because over time it doesn't really work. But I love opioids. I don't want them to go away. They've been really helpful in my injuries and my surgeries and stuff like that. So, which I've had a lot of, but it's like, if you can avoid being on drugs long-term, you should. That's kind of, I think just a natural evolution of from where we stand. So the pain issue I'm really excited about. I'm also really excited about the performance angle. Like what can we do with sports performance with psychedelics, I think that's really interesting. Or just... Um, what are you seeing? There's a lot of people in extreme sports and elsewhere, like uh, combat sports, like skiing, snowboarding, who are taking healthy doses of psychedelics to practice and also to perform. Um, it's really crazy. Interesting. Kind of putting them into a flow state? Probably. Like, I don't understand it yet. Like, flow state is probably a good way of looking at it. But yeah, they just the feats are really incredible. Like it certainly carries a whole lot of risk. And the data says 
it shouldn't work as is what i've seen in the in the scientific literature like oh you're you're going to be too dreamy and not have any focus because of this 30% of people that you know report x i'm like sure but what about the actual athletes themselves if you talk to them <laughs> about their you know get their stories i'm like that's what i'm here for is getting stories often and exposing them so the pain the cluster headache what's the evidence there what's what's the data right now on cluster headaches and psychedelics do you know I read scientific papers in like 2008 on this. I haven't read any lately. I connect with that team often, but what they're seeing is people before psychedelics who have cluster headaches regularly kill themselves. There's no hope. The treatments aren't that great. Their their other name is suicide headaches. Whoa. They're that bad. So these people are hopeless. They're depressed. Pain decreases IQ. This is where like it gets me like, you know, why can't they at least try this legally? Let me get a little angrier at the DEA. Yeah. So Bob Wold, who's been the steward and founder for a long time, he's still among the living. It's great. He was sharing when we were launching the Psychedelics and Pain Association that once people who are cluster headache sufferers try psychedelics, suicide's not on the table anymore. That's wild. Like they might still suffer, but at least they know they have some hope. Now, I heard something recently, and maybe you would know about it, because I only heard a split second of it. It was something about the right to die and the right to use psychedelics. Is there some movement for people that have terminal illness to have the right to use psychedelics? And is that making headway? Do you know? A little bit. So we had Satya Talam on, who is a DC policy guy who wrote the right, co-wrote with probably a big team, the, the right to try legislation that went through. And they didn't really have psychedelics in mind, which is awesome. And all of a sudden, what happened was this thing that passed, I don't know if it was an executive order or what, but there's law, there's federal law now that if you're dying and you've tried a few other things, you have the right to try things that have passed phase one safety trials, phase one clinical trials, which now includes MDMA, LSD, psilocybin, and many other interesting compounds, probably even a boga ibogaine. And that's federal? That was a federal law. Yeah. Federal Right to Try Act, if you want to look it up. And Satya Talam was recently on PT, and you can check out that episode if you want to learn a little bit more about it. So there's that. But it doesn't guarantee you access, and the feds aren't going to help you get it, right? So So you have to break the law to get it. You have to break your local state laws. This is one of the best and worst things about America is the sloppy legal structure. I love it for a number of reasons, but I also dislike it for a number of reasons. But when Denver was decriminalizing mushrooms and there was a, a guy with like stage four terminal brain cancer and his doctor was bold enough to prescribe psilocybin mushrooms. And he was really public about his illness and his prescription, which was, it was right after federal right to try went through that they leaned on this, which is really epic. Now there's a number of attorneys, like I think who are the Matthew Zorn and a few other folks are working on this kind of um, further right to try work. Um, so like, how do we actually formalize this and make it so that we can get access to safe, meaning regulated supply, tested supply of these things that we, we want to use as we're on our way out? Have you done psychedelic assisted therapy yourself? With ketamine? Yeah. Like I would actually love to do some couch sessions with MDMA. I would probably be down to try like um, psilocybin couch therapy, but yeah, ketamine for sure. Yeah, and I, I liked it. It was good enough. I wasn't over the moon about it. It's what's legal and available now. And for what it's worth, I got six big doses for $14 without insurance. 
Like that was pharmacy cost. So before we kind of end here, anything else that is alive for you that you'd like to talk about in this space? I mean, 500 episodes. Whoa, my hat's off to you. Thank you. (laughs) Amazing work and amazing bringing such important topics. So there's two, two big ones. So like as we're approaching a number of converging catastrophes, you might want to call it, there's so much hope with psychedelics, psychedelics and creativity, psychedelics for creative problem solving, I think is something that's wildly under discussed and explored and really should be. So I think that's one. And look at the psychedelic explorers guide section on creativity for, for more conversation there. That's Jim Fadiman's book. And then, um, you know, what's the future of culture? What's the future of religion? What's the future of like, how, how are we going to conduct ourselves as um, interesting actors on the planet? I think psychedelics, MDMA, and, and other other substances can really play an interesting role for us reforming from this really sick uh, way where a lot of us are living. Coming out of my communal situation at Burning Man to kind of like nuclear family land, like I'm, I'm not exactly satisfied with nuclear family land. Like how can we do things differently? How can we live in a way that makes us all happier and healthier? and is easier on the planet, right? When we do nuclear families, you need 8 billion toasters. What if you collectivized a little bit and only needed one, you know, cut it in one eighth. And everybody feels more connected. Yeah. You know, there's problems to solve there. And I think there's room for improving the future of religion. What is religion in the advent of psychedelics, right? Like, you can go to the mass or you can go to the mass on LSD. Does that make it better? Like Tim Leary actually went back to Roman Catholicism in his later years, which I found interesting, but he had a lot of interesting insights from many years of interesting exploration. What is it for us? What is it for you? There's a lot to explore there. And that's why I'm excited to be doing this Jewish informed perspectives course. And I would love to do more niche religious courses. And you know, what is it that you've been primed with? Fascinating, because to me, the intersectionality of maybe spirituality and awakening is probably, and health, is the most interesting kind of thing, because you started this by saying you started to read that book, and suddenly you realize this reality that we're in is not quite as we thought it was, just even when reading the books, and then you take an earth medicine or a psychedelic, and you realize, wow, there's a lot more here than the human mind can understand And it is something, a life force, something, life, life itself, whatever, beyond us. And experiencing that and getting to know that and creating something around that is interesting to me and living from that in some way. How do we push hope? Keep hope alive. And that's it. Yeah. Joy. Yeah. When we're beaten down, there's no reason to hope. But when we can keep each other optimistic and hopeful and creative and having fun and, and feeling loved and loving each other, like there's a lot more there that can positively happen. Yeah. So you feel still feel hopeful that psychedelics can change the Western maybe model of things that are causing our society to be so unwell and disconnected. If tended to with enough attention, 100%. Yeah. If we just say, oh, let's do the TMZ version. And it's going to be quite different. Um, but if we, you know, really, really care and try to do it well, we can really do a lot here. 
Well, thank you so much for today. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. It's been fun. Good to see you. Yeah, likewise. If you enjoyed today's show and want to help build a more beautiful, conscious, and loving world, please share this content with friends, family, and colleagues. You can follow this show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever platform you use. And I'd really appreciate you taking the time to write a review so that others can find these amazing conversations. And if you'd like to see a video version of the show, you can find me on YouTube. Feel free to reach out and connect with me at thepsychedelicmom.com or message me on Instagram at thepsychedelicmom. And remember, you are the medicine. <laughs>